Bruce ready to go? Again, this is the BlockFi Inc. at Al Matters. A uh, few housekeeping matters before I uh, start he hearing from counsel. Uh, my chambers has received this through this morning uh, several inquiries from customers, retail investors, retail customers, uh, uh, creditors wanting to participate. Uh, in the hearing, and certainly the court is make, going to make a commitment that voices get heard, everyone's voices get heard. Today being the initial hearing, uh, I'm reluctant to allow through Zoom uh, individuals uh, apart from limited counsel uh, to participate. Certainly, uh, we, we're making the live feed available through Zooms so everybody can uh, see what's transpiring. We want transparency at all costs. But it's important uh, in the court's view that uh, all customers and parties in interest and creditors have uh, the ability first to communicate with any committee that's formed and counsel for the committee uh, and, and, and have uh, that opportunity uh, before uh, addressing issues with the court. Uh, again, the court's going to make a commitment to make sure that any voices are heard, certainly before any final hearing. Today is primarily interim hearings uh, in order to uh, ensure that the Chapter 11 debtors going forward uh, can operate effectively. Uh, having said that, uh, if you are in court, you're certainly... Welcome to be heard. If you are in court and have your laptops on, uh, try to make sure that your sound and mic is off, and also try to limit your use of uh, the Internet. Uh, we, I anticipate, because that's the way we work now, uh, PowerPoint presentations, uh, and which use a lot of our Wi-Fi, uh, and uh, we don't need anybody downloading the new Microsoft uh, updates while, while this is going on. Uh, if you are appearing or uh, and have been registered to speak uh, through Zoom, please use the raise hand function. Uh, I will be looking. My law clerks here will be uh, on uh, alert to see and ensure that we, we reach everybody. Uh, Apart from that, let's start with introductions. Normally in these the larger cases, I ask for appearances initially, so I get to put names and faces together. After that, uh, I would just ask for uh, introductions when you're about to speak. Mr. Sirota, good morning. Your Honor, good morning. Michael Sirota, Felice Yutkin, Cole Schatz, PC, as proposed co-counsel, the debtors in possession. 
Your Honor, it's our pleasure to be working with the legal equivalent of the E Street Band, including Kirkland Nellis, Josh Sussberg, Christine Okiki, Haynes and Boone, Richard Kanowitz, Jordan Chavez, as well as financial advisor extraordinaire Mark Renzi from the Berkeley Research Group. On behalf of the company, I'd also like to in introduce the court to Zachary Prince, co-founder and CEO, Flora Marquez, founder and co-founder and COO. So with those very limited introductions, and after all other appearances are entered, uh, Mr. Sussberg will take the tea box and provide his opening presentation. Thank you, Mr. Schroeder. Welcome all to New Jersey. Uh, let me have appearances then uh, on behalf of other counsel who wish to enter appearances. Good morning, Your Honor. Jeff Sponder and Lauren Bilski from the Office of the United States Trustee. Good morning. Morning, Your Honor. Robert Malone, Gibbons PC, appearing on behalf of Encore Trust Company, the indentured trustee. Good morning, Mr. Malone. Anyone else? Oh, Mr. Winston on, on Zoom. Uh, good morning, Your Honor. Eric Winston of Quinn Emanuel on behalf of West Realm Shires and its affiliated debtors and debtors in possession in the FTX bankruptcy cases. Great. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Winston. Anyone else? All right. Mr. Sussberg. Thank you, Your Honor. Joshua Sussberg from Kirkland & Ellis on behalf of the debtors. Your Honor, I believe this is your first foray into crypto. Uh, yes. But I will tell you, and I want you to know we do our homework. Fearfully, but well, we'll, we'll go forward. We went back and we were looking at first day transcripts. And back on January 28, 2021, the La Octane bankruptcy, which I, I do like the soap, by the way, um, you made a comment that you were looking forward to your first cash management motion that utilized Bitcoin. Today is that day. The now, foresight I had, it's amazing. Well, I will tell you, it's interesting because at the moment in time when you made that comment, Bitcoin was trading at $33,000 per coin. Very different today, but we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, Your Honor, if I may, we have a uh, presentation I'd like to yes. walk through, provide the court with some background and some context. Peer-to-peer um, -peer electronic payment systems have evolved since 2009 when Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin. And in those 13 plus years, some people have lost a tremendous amount of value and others have made a fortune. It's funny, I was thinking about it because my father always told me to be in the right place at the right time and to always realize that timing was everything. And now when I say that to my three boys and they sit there and they roll their eyes and I know it goes in one ear and out the other, you realize at some moments it actually does make a difference. So if we can put the presentation up. Technical difficulties, kind of reflective of where we're at, right? Yeah. 
There we go. So here, ooh. slide two, Your Honor, found this interesting. Um, back in 2011, 56 gamers participated for a StarCraft competition, which is a military-themed uh, science fiction video game. And it was sponsored by a company called BTC Sports Bet. And they were one of the sponsors. And as you can see, the first place prize was $500, and it was a total of $1,000 in prize money for places one through four. But when you got to fifth through eighth place, 25 bitcoins were available. Now, I went and did the math, and at the time, bitcoin was $1.65. So the 25 bitcoin prize total was $41.25. Now, if those four participants still held those 25 bitcoins today, the total value of those same 25 coins is $412,345 based on the price of Bitcoin this morning, which was about $16,000. Now, if those four players had listened to my father and been in the right place at the right time and held those Bitcoins for one decade and sold them and cashed them out on November 12, 2021, when Bitcoin was at an all-time high, $64,400. If you finished in fifth through eighth place, you would have had $1.6 million at that moment in time. Suffice it to say, the volatility is both amazing and tremendously hard to reconcile. We want to introduce you to BlockFi today, Your Honor. And the first thing I want to start with, and I want to be very clear, this is the antithesis of FTX where FTX is talking about loss of controls and some of the worst governance anyone has seen in their career, including the current CEO who presided over the Enron fraud liquidation, this is completely 180 degrees a different story. And we're going to spend some time talking about the two co-founders you met and how they approach life and how they've approached this company. But this has been a company that was focused on creating an opportunity for people that otherwise don't have access to the financial system to actually get that opportunity and be able to trade, borrow, and participate on an exchange with even information, appropriate governance, and appropriate protocols. And as Mr. Renzi pointed out in his declaration, paragraph 27, the company was founded in 2017 and started with humble beginnings in 2018. But between 2019 and March 2022, trading volume grew from $2 million to more than $23 billion. Deployable assets grew from $345 million to $14.8 billion. Gross loan origination expanded from $687 million to more than $47 billion. And all this growth, again, and we'll cover it in detail, was accompanied by mature and consistent leadership who focused on hiring the right experts and deploying the right people to make sure all the appropriate protocols and procedures were in place. Just want to cover what we're going to go through today. Going to do a little bit of a 101 on crypto, just to make sure we set the landscape. We'll talk about key introductions, an overview of the business, events that led to these cases, the path forward, and then we'll get right into the agenda. So what is crypto? And this slide is complicated, and I'm going to bring it all together based on a 
tutorial CLE class I had for Mr. Renzi last night. Crypto is any form of currency that exists digitally or virtually that uses cryptography to secure transactions. And cryptography is a technique that uses secure communications to allow only the sender and the recipient of a message to view the contents. So this peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system is digital and decentralized. It can be used to buy and sell things. The first ever commercial transaction involving Bitcoin was on May 22, 2011. A computer programmer in Florida bought two Papa John's pizzas for $10,000 of Bitcoin, 10,000 Bitcoins. That is the reason why, Your Honor, that every May 22nd of every year, it's called Bitcoin Pizza Day. First ever transaction. Now, I love pizza. I'm sure everyone here loves pizza. But $165 million for 20 slices of Papa John's, it's a little steep for my take. But the potential of store value has caught the eye of many investors. Most people invest in crypto like they would in other assets, like stocks and precious metals. Transactions, importantly, are stored in an electronic checkbook ledger recorded in blocks that are then linked together on a chain, and that's referred to as the blockchain. Transfers are completed through a computer network that is not relying on any central authority like the government or a bank to uphold and maintain. We're going to talk a lot today about stable coins, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. Stable coins are cryptocurrencies that are pegged to a reserve asset to maintain price and stability. Because these are supposedly less volatile, stable coins are better suited for day-to-day -day commerce and routine transactions. They can also facilitate trade execution for any purpose with minimum volatility. Now, USDC uh, is the USD coin, and that's a good example. It's 100% backed by cash and short-dated U.S. Treasuries. So it's always one-to-one. -one. And USDC reserves are in custody and management of leading U.S. financial institutions. And in fact, each month, Grant Thornton provides third-party assurance that adequate reserves are in place to support the coin. Now, while USD is stable and effectively regulated, other stable coins have purported to be fully backed by reserves, but as Your Honor is going to hear, they've come under fire for misleading information, and it's frankly caused a domino effect that has had contagion throughout the industry, and BlockFi was subject to that contagion. As far as a few of the key terms, the two main coins, and we outlined this in Mr. Renzi's declaration, you'll see at the top, Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, those are the two most prevalent coins with the most market value. Mining. My first foray into crypto, I was literally thinking of people in mines, figuring out where you find the coin. It's not the case. These are complicated systems that are solving mathematical equations and using high-powered machinery to solve and figure out blocks on the blockchain to actually create the coin. And I am told, interestingly enough, that six new Bitcoins are mined every 10 minutes. And that's through these mathematical equations. Crypto loans on the right side before NFTs, uh, you can get cash for up to 50% of your assets to unlock liquidity. And there are tax benefits associated with that many people benefit from. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. This started with digital art, but it has expanded tremendously. And now people are tokenizing things and buying real assets. Uh, crypto exchange, just think of E-Trade for crypto. DeFi and CeFi protocols, one is decentralized, one is centralized, 
So if you want to act on a peer-to-peer -peer basis and really be in control, you're on a DeFi protocol. If you want to be on an exchange where you have opportunity to access blockchain without any hassle of doing it on your own, you're in a CeFi protocol. A couple other key terms, Your Honor. You're going to hear about proof of work and proof of stake. Proof of work was the original consensus mechanism utilized in the blockchain network. It is extremely energy intensive, and the process is resulting in massive costs for miners as it relates to the staking and the charting out of the blockchain. Um, and the computers that need to solve these equations run, again, on a massive amount of power. Proof of stake is less energy intensive, and it requires participants to stake the network's currency with a smart contract, much less costly. Two other points to make, Your Honor. Hot wallets and cold wallets. I think people have been reading a lot about this. FTX transferred a lot of their assets to a cold wallet. For cold wallets, think of storage. It's a device that you put away, and in order to get access, you have to go through a whole rigmarole to plug back in and actually be able to access and trade lively and freely. Whereas a hot wallet is hot, and you're able to plug right in and be able to trade on a daily basis. The hot wallets, though, are subject to risk because that's the reason why there was a hacking at FTX. And obviously, through the course of the Internet, over the 30 years that it's been in existence, there are always issues with phishing and hacking. And that becomes a concern, and it's a reason why some people move to cold wallets. And then the only th other thing I'll mention on this page, Your Honor, is the future. There's a lot of uncertainty. I think BlockFi has been at the forefront of working with regulators across the board, and we'll talk about that. But the entire industry is under a microscope. There are congressional hearings in December, and there will be discussion about governmental regulation. Mr. Sussberg, you're going to make, uh, I hope you can, uh, paper copies of these available for the court? We will, and we will post a copy, if we haven't already, on the claims agent website Great. for everyone to see. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a couple anecdotes on this slide. We note the active exchanges that are out there. These are not all of them, but these are some of the more well-known ones, Binance and Kraken, to name a few. We'll spend some time talking about the inactive crypto exchanges. Those are ones where the company has entered into an insolvency proceeding and paused the ability for certain investors to withdraw funds. And then finally, on the bottom, you'll see the Coinbase stock, which I believe this morning was at $42 a share. That's down from nearly $400 that it experienced just eight months ago. Your Honor, if I may approach, I have a comment. Yeah, please. Great. <coughs> Thank you. Last item on the Crypto 101, Your Honor. Uh, we bucket these into four different types of coins. The payment coins are the ones that people are most familiar with. There's Bitcoin. There's ETH. Utility tokens. These are interesting. These are issued for a design-specific purpose. So not necessarily in the day-to-day -day trading or purchasing of assets or exchanges, but for a specific utility on a specific blockchain. 
Governance tokens allow for decentralization and an ability for customers and consumers to be able to actually vote on how a certain protocol or blockchain will actually work. And you can acquire additional governance tokens to be able to have an outside voice. And then stable coins we covered, and we will cover much more. You see on the bottom the USD coin. Introductions. Mr. Sirota mentioned our two co-founders, Mr. Prince and Ms. Marquez. I do want to say about these two, I have met them now for two weeks, and I've learned a lot about them, and I am incredibly impressed by both of them. These are self-made individuals. They built this company through hard work with their bare hands, and they did it the right way. And but for some unfortunate circumstances, your honors read the numbers, you've heard them from me this morning, this company was on a rocket ship. Now, Mr. Prince, as far as a fun fact is concerned, was working in ad sales prior to founding the company, actually worked at a company where he turbocharged revenue for ads, sold the company to Google. It was one of several exits that he had at companies that he worked at. He was a nationally ranked youth tennis player and tells me that he likes all sports with a racket. Uh, Ms. Marquez, Your Honor, landed herself on the Forbes 30 under 30 finance list in 2021, started her career in investment banking, and then worked as an analyst at Oak Hill and also at Bond Street. A fun fact for Ms. Marquez, she's the proud owner of a Corgi. I was new to crypto this summer, and I must admit that I had no idea what a Corgi was when she told me she had one, and I had to look it up. But I'm glad I did. It's a beautiful dog. Uh, Your Honor, Mr. Sirota mentioned, just want to echo, companies advised by Kirkland, Haynes and & Boone, and Cole Schatz. BRGs are proposed financial advisor, and Mr. Renzi is our first day declarant. The Molis team, serving as proposed investment banker, led by Jared Dermont, Barack Klein, Brian Tishner, Mike Diani, and Mike Medier. C Street is our strategic and communications advisor. Team is led by John Hennis, who's in the courtroom, Jackie Rubin, and Luke Wolf, who's also in the courtroom. And then Kroll is our proposed noticing and claims agent. And you'll hear about the Bermuda proceeding where the company is advised by Walkers. And Mr. Kanowitz will walk through that. Business overview. Straightforward, Your Honor. We divide the clients into two sections. There's the retail clients, where the company maintains easily accessible web and mobile applications to make it simple for individuals and small businesses to access, trade, borrow, and store digital assets. And then there's institutional clients. And these are hedge funds, market makers, proprietary trading firms, trading desks, miners, exchanges, and corporations with bespoke financing, trading, and treasury solutions in the digital asset space. The company after it was founded by Mr. Prince and Ms. Marquez, and after it got started and hired a few more individuals, they came up with four core values that embody its culture. And as I've become adept at understanding what this company does and the people that are there, these are four core values that any institution should think about and should incorporate. Pragmatic pioneering, clients, not customers. I think that's important in my business as well, so we'll incorporate that at Kirkland. Individual efforts, collective success, transparency builds trust. And no matter what has happened over the course of the last eight months, 
which has been bumpy to say the least, and we will cover. These four core principles have always held true and been at the forefront of everything that this management team has done. The company's business and its client-centric approach is laid out in detail in Mr. Renzi's declaration, but I did want to spend a minute, Your Honor, because I know it will be a hot topic in the case, talking about the wallet. Uh, you can fund a wallet by transferring supported digital assets from your personal wallet that exists outside the exchange or to a wallet address provided by BlockFi Trading. And we'll go over the corporate structure in a moment. You can also transfer U.S. dollars to BlockFi's trading account at Silvergate Bank. And you can then use that to purchase digital assets on the exchange. The wallet is not interest bearing. The crypto in your wallet is not rehypothecated for lending activities. And there is no commingling. So once you open your wallet, you can then decide that you want to direct the transfer of those assets to an interest bearing account to the extent you were able to do so. You can buy and exchange on the company's basis. Um, and you can direct transfers back to your personal account. But if it's in your wallet, it's always in your wallet. And every day, at the end of the day, the company maintains a ledger, and the ledger is balanced with the wallets to make sure that everything is accounted for. And again, there's no commingling, and everything stays in your personal wallet on the BlockFi exchange. Now, in all the crypto cases that we have been involved, the terms of use are incredibly important right. because the terms of use control. And you would not be surprised, Your Honor, that from exchange to exchange, the terms of use are not necessarily the same. In BlockFi's instance, the BlockFi wallet terms of service, and we cited this in Mr. Renzi's declaration, it says, and I'll quote, the title to the cryptocurrency held in your BlockFi wallet shall at all times remain with you and shall not transfer to BlockFi. We intend, Your Honor, as we noted in the pleadings, to quickly file a motion to allow customers to withdraw from their personal wallets to the extent they so wish, because we do not believe that is property of the estate. We will, of course, take that up with the committee once it is formed. I'm sure there will be a diligence exercise, but we believe it's important. And Mr. Prince and Ms. Marquez's founding most important point is doing right by clients, and doing right by clients means following our agreements, and that's what we intend to do in these cases. Well, I think it's going to be important just judging the the tenor of the questions that are listed on the Zoom question and answer from a, a few of the customers, that's certainly their focal point, deservedly so. So, And we are focused on them. And, and you know, to be clear, Your Honor, these cases in this case are different than typical cases. The committee is going to be comprised of retail and institutional clients. And so it's important for us to be shoulder to shoulder with that customer committee, that client committee. And that's exactly what we intend to do. And we want to look at these agreements, and we want to make sure we get people back as much of their value as we possibly can as quickly as we can. As far as institutional investors, Your Honor, I just did want to note, and this goes to governance and protocols and all the things the company did right, it was a rigorous process when an institution came and wanted to participate and lend or borrow. And there were AML and KYC and all the various background checks that were necessary in order to get access to the custom trading services and all the benefits and the individually negotiated programs that were done with certain institutional investors. Your Honor, I mentioned, and I only will do this briefly, but 
the protocols that the company had in place and the governance and the risk were incredibly important and at top of the market. And BlockFi had a specific design approach to risk management. They created an audit and risk committee directly responsible for all of the things that could potentially put the company in jeopardy. Reviewing policies relating to enterprise risk, considering adequacy and effectiveness and internal controls. And all of these things led to the review and the participation of the transparency reports that the company repeatedly would put out to the marketplace to show liquidity and make sure everyone understood exactly where things stood at the time, notwithstanding market conditions. As I mentioned, Your Honor, and there's four areas here, industry-leading compliance. First, the company never launched its own token. And you're going to understand why that's important and why that has been such a problem for the industry in a few moments. Number two, industry leader in transparency, as I mentioned, publishing regularly reports on transparency, liquidity, credit risk. Three, and this is pretty unbelievable, 47 licenses issued by 32 states to be a money transmitter and to be able to operate under the auspice of the law. There is a lot of chatter in a lot of cases about inappropriately operating without money transmission lines. This company did it by the book, 32 different states and the District of Columbia, as well as a license in Bermuda. And then finally, this is the only company to have negotiated and settled with the SEC. Now, the SEC inquired around the yield program where people could earn interest. And the question became, and it's a question that Mr. Gensler has been asking a lot of different people, is this a security? And the company went back and forth for a very long time, ultimately settling with the SEC, uh, allowing the program to, commit, to continue in Bermuda, but no new investments were allowed in the United States. The company then worked and has been working with the SEC on a prospectus and the S-1 to be able to relaunch this product, and we will see what happens during the course of these cases as to whether or not we move forward on that basis. Slide 18, Your Honor. This is a global presence. The company currently has 292 employees and 82 independent contractors located in more than a dozen countries as reflected on the slide. I do think it's important to note, however, that two-thirds of the workforce was provided with warn notice just prior to the filing of these Chapter 11 cases. Now, this will result over time on an annual basis in $34 million of savings for the company. So it was a necessary, prudent, but very difficult decision for the company to make. I mention this because, Your Honor, the WARN and the two-thirds workforce leaving necessitates the company taking immediate action to retain and motivate the remaining employees. And that's why we worked incredibly hard together with the company's compensation consultant, Willis Towers Watson, to design a key employee retention plan and a targeted retention plan, all for non-insider employees. And we filed that motion, Your Honor, yesterday, docket 21. We're intending to have that heard on the yet-to-be-scheduled second-day hearing, and that's another item that I am certain we will take up with the client committee, the customer committee, the creditors committee, however we want to define it. But I'm sure they're going to want to understand that, and we will walk them through in painstaking detail because there is nothing more important than maintaining the third of the workforce that remains. 
This, Your Honor, is the debtor's corporate structure. And you'll notice, somewhat simplistic, very much unlike the corporate structure of FTX. This is designed with specific purpose, where there was a business reason or a regulatory reason to form an entity, that entity was formed. FTX has 130 entities that they're still trying to figure out the morass and reason for why those entities were filed. And I think this goes and demonstrates the logic behind the way in which Mr. Prince and Ms. Marquez founded the company and operated the company. BlockFi International, Your Honor, is the Bermuda Incorporated Company. And as you have read in Mr. Renzi's declaration, in parallel with these cases, we will be seeking to appoint joint provisional liquidators under applicable law in Bermuda so that we can have the case resolved in front of Your Honor in an appropriate manner without concern for people taking action in Bermuda. I will highlight, Your Honor, as we note here, there are certain intercompany transactions between five different entities. There's BlockFi Inc., BlockFi Lending, BlockFi International, that's Bermuda, and then there's BlockFi Trading and BlockFi Wallet. Intercompany balances arise from various transactions and intercompany agreements. And these include agreements related to the execution of crypto trades, intercompany services agreements, and capital contribution agreements. Now, in order to deal with intercompany issues, we took a look at the governance system and we wanted to make sure that we had best-in-class protection and governance to be able to not only address, if they need to be, the intercompany claims, but also deal with the review and investigation of any claims related to the FTX transaction or any payments to insiders, anything and everything, because we will do it by the book. And as you see, Your Honor, we've appointed several independent directors to help carry out this task. Scott Vogel and Jennifer Hill at BlockFi Inc., they were formed to a special committee. Kirkland will be conducting the investigation on their behalf. My colleagues, Mr. Slade and Mr. Howell, two of the finest lawyers I know, are in the room and will be leading the charge. Mr. Tepner was appointed to BlockFi Lending. Mr. Carr, BlockFi Trading. Ms. Corey, BlockFi Wallet. And Ms. Frisley, the BlockFi International. And she'll be handling and dealing with the Bermuda issues. This is the company's funded debt on the left and then the equity count on the right. I will note that the funded debt was all from the FTX transaction in the summer where the company needed liquidity in light of market events to ensure that customer withdrawals were backstopped. And I think it's important to note on this slide, Your Honor, the $400 million that was provided was junior in all respects to client obligations. It was there as a backstop for the withdrawals that kept coming when Celsius and Voyager and others paused their systems. So if people had crypto anywhere else, they got scared and they went and they withdrew their crypto. And at no time until just a week ago did BlockFi pause withdrawals. And in large part, the liquidity from FTX and the notoriety of FTX at the time certainly helped that. On the right side, Your Honor, is the equity interest. I will note that the one special voting stock share is held by FTX. That was granted to them in connection with this loan and the option agreement that they entered into to buy the company in 2023. Suffice it to say, that transaction is not happening, uh, but I wanted to note it so Your Honor was clear as to why there was one share. 
This is just a timeline that I'll briefly walk through, Your Honor, that shows the start to the filing. The company started 2017, began raising funds in 2018, and then you see the series of preferreds leading to July, August 2021, a $3.8 billion valuation. The SEC settlement was in early 22, and in May, Luna collapses. And we'll cover this in a little bit of detail because it's important, because the Luna collapse really was the start of everything. And as you can see, as you go all the way up, all sorts of different companies were impacted by the Luna collapse, causing withdrawals, causing pauses, and causing bankruptcies and contagion throughout the industry. Events leading to Chapter 11. So overall, beginning in the summer of 2022, there's been an immense pullback in crypto. And many cryptocurrencies experienced significant decline. As you can see, Bitcoin lost 67% year-to-date, going from mid-40,000s all the way down to where it was trading this morning, 16,000 and change. And it's gone up and down in relatively modest amounts over the course of the last couple months as it reacts to the market news and the next shoe to drop. And while Bitcoin was experiencing this pressure, there was literally a collapse of Luna overnight. And we described it in Mr. Renzi's declaration, but I think it's so important to understand and I wanted to spend a minute, if your honor's okay, kind of walking through yes, the background. Please. So Terra is a company, you've seen the name. Um, it's a blockchain protocol created by Terra Labs. And Terra Labs created two coins. They created Terra USD, which we call UST, that's a stable coin, and they created Luna. Uh, the yield on staking UST was enormous. Those who owned and staked their U UST earn 19.5% interest. So at a time where you could earn 1% interest in the bank, if you had this coin and staked it, 19.5% interest. Nearly 75% of UST was staked. And staking, again, is a fancy way of saying you agree to lock up your crypto for an extended period of time. Now, UST is the riskiest version of stablecoin. I had talked earlier about USDC. That's backed by government securities. So there's very little opportunity for that to go anything but one-to-one. -one. But UST is an algorithmic stablecoin, or a stablecoin that's backed by another coin. And here, UST was backed by Luna. A functioning algorithmic stablecoin is literally the holy grail of crypto because it minimizes volatility without reference to physical assets or currency. <coughs> UST, interestingly enough, was also backed by the Luna Foundation Guard, which was a $3 billion fund that was created to defend UST if a DPEG occurred. Now, Luna had a market cap, you see it on the slide, $18 billion before it crashed. The problem, and no one knew this, was that UST was deeply under-collateralized. So UST maintained its peg to Luna via an arbitrage mechanism and relied on traders to re-peg if the prices fell one way or the other. So one UST was always exchangeable for $1 of Luna, and vice versa. So when UST was exchanged for Luna, the UST was converted into Luna. When Luna was exchanged for UST, the Luna was converted into UST. So theoretically, it's supposed to mean that you're always at a dollar. If UST traded above a dollar, 
traders could buy $1 worth of Luna for $1 and exchange the Luna for one UST worth more than a dollar and pocket the difference. That's the arbitrage. If it traded below a dollar, the traders could buy one UST for less than a dollar and exchange it for one dollar worth of Luna and pocket that difference. The Luna Foundation's $3 billion in assets was supposed to facilitate that repeg when one went below or one went above. And it traded freely, mostly on sentiment regarding the Terra Systems ecosystem. And it traded around $80 per coin. Now, on May 7, 2022, $2 billion of UST was unstaked and sold. The unstaking was done in a limited number of large transactions, suggesting that the collapse of this coin may have been malicious. But the massive selling caused pressure on UST, and it slid all the way to $0.91. Cents. Arbitrage traders stepped in to repeg Luna, but they realized that as the system was set up, you could only get $100 million of UST converted into Luna in a day. And that just simply wasn't enough. That amount was completely insufficient to repeg the coin. And when UST failed to repeg, investors panicked and sold even more. Additional selling pressure forced the price of UST even lower. And it created a death spiral. UST dropped in price, but arbitragers continued to attempt to repeg UST and capture the arbitrage. That created an oversupply of Luna, which dropped in price as well. And when people tried to convert their Luna into UST, created more UST, which caused that price to drop even more. Eventually, both these currencies that were trading at 18 billions of dollars a week before were down to a penny. And the Luna Foundation Guard burned through all $3 billion of the funds that it set aside to repeg. And that happened literally in one week. The next shoe to drop, and I appreciate your honor indulging me because I think this is a building block, was Three Arrows Capital. And reportedly due in large part to a massive staked position in Luna, where they were unable to get out of it because it had already been committed and staked, they end up getting into a British Virgin Islands liquidation proceeding. Their founders were nowhere to be found. They had gone to different countries. This is still unwinding as we speak. But this was a massive blow to the industry because Three Arrows was somebody that everybody in crypto wanted to do business with. And everybody wanted to be in trading and participation with Three Arrow Capital. And the fall of Three Arrows was so swift. Next was Celsius and Voyager. And shortly after the Three Arrows collapse, both Celsius and Voyagers first paused withdrawals and then both commenced their respective Chapter 11 proceedings in the Southern District of New York, each within 10 days of each other. The impact on BlockFi was tremendous. Three Arrows Capital was, if not the single largest borrower client to BlockFi, the second largest borrower client, and its collapse led to material losses, but they were mitigated by BlockFi's credit policies and there was security with respect to those transactions that led to those mitigation efforts. There are many investors uh, and participants with Three Arrows Capital that lent on an unsecured basis and are now formed on the creditors committee in the British Virgin Islands. But all of this, the collapse of UST, along with the halting of withdrawals at Celsius and Voyager, as I mentioned, Your Honor, when those platforms paused withdrawals, everybody on every exchange got nervous. And you had to have significant capital 
to be able to manage through all of your withdrawals, which as you see on the right-hand slide, this company was able to do. But in order to ensure that the company could withstand the storm and satisfy its clients' withdrawal demands, it prudently sought additional liquidity to protect its clients' accounts into the indefinite future. And the company first looked at equity financing, which obviously was not available in the marketplace at this time. And then it turned to raising debt capital and spoke with many different parties and ultimately landed on FTX. And that's when they came on the scene. And it was lauded as a phenomenal transaction, um, precedent-setting transaction. Sam Bankman-Fried was the savior of crypto and wanted to be there to make sure that the industry was stabilized. They offered, again, the backstrop client withdrawals, 400 million notional amount, 275 of which was drawn, and then the option that we talked about to acquire the company as early as July 2023. I will note, Your Honor, that at the time, 89% of blocked by shareholders voted in favor of the transaction. Uh, I don't think it's lost on anyone that this was a company that just a year before had been valued at $3.8 billion. And so fast forward in just this short time, and they're getting an option to buy the company, which resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars of equity value, at least on paper, being wiped out overnight. And the management team and the co-founders are still here because they're always focused on doing the right thing by their clients. And to their credit and the rest of the teams, they accepted this offer because it was the right thing to do to protect their clients and ensure they had funds to deal with withdrawals. The funds that were provided by FTX yes, sir. were in, it was cryptocurrency, correct? Or it was, was it wasn't uh, fiat? It was cryptocurrency. And, and stablecoin. Stablecoin, yes. primarily? Yes. Okay. Um, I will also note that 20% of the workforce um, was severed at the time back when the transaction was entered into. In addition, uh, there are other arrangements that exist between BlockFi. I stand corrected, Your Honor. It was just USDC, so just stablecoin. That's what I thought I read. Okay. Thank you. Um, in addition to the loan arrangement and the $275 million that was drawn, BlockFi acted as a lender to Alameda, which is an FTX trading subsidiary, and they also had crypto on the FTX platform. Specifically, BlockFi had $671 million in outstanding loans that are defaulted to Alameda and $355 million in digital assets that unfortunately are now frozen on the FTX platform. And Mr. Kanowitz will be leading the charge to collect those assets from the FTX estate. I think that process is going to play out over a long period of time if uh, I had to make a bet. And that's, that's the basis for the adversary proceeding that was filed? Separate and apart. Separate okay. and apart. The, the adversary proceeding relates to the collateral. certain collateral okay. that was pledged that we believe is rightfully ours that's outside of the bankruptcy estate. So, Your Honor, I'll, I'll go through this quickly because I know you're familiar. Back on November 2nd, there was a report that was released, and it indicated that of the $14.6 billion in assets that FTX had on its balance sheet, $5.8 billion of which was its native token, 
FTT. And that report initiated a death spiral for FTT, very similar to the Luna and the Terra. And as you can see, Binance was a very large holder of that token. And there are a series of tweets that are out there from the CEO of Binance saying, I've learned from Luna. I am selling my entire stake of FTT. And that, of course, caused a run of the bank and the price of FTT to drop tremendously. As you can see from the highlights, the crypto world is rocked as the world's largest exchange seeks to rescue rival. That was short-lived. Binance not only sold all of its FTT and caused a run on the token, but then turned around and signed a non-binding uh, letter of intent to acquire FTX, only to one day later say that the diligence that they reviewed could not allow them to participate in any type of transaction with this company. And so the death spiral continued. And very soon thereafter, FTX filed for Chapter 11. Sam Bankman-Fried resigned. It's been reported that there are over 1 million creditors in the bankruptcy filing. And it was reported that there was a substantial amount of crypto that was stolen even after the Chapter 11 filing. And that's why, Your Honor, they moved from hot wallets to cold storage to cold wallets, uh, all of which has led to comments coming out of the bankruptcy and we highlighted this one from John Ray, who's the new CEO. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. And again, this is the gentleman that oversaw the Enron liquidation after enormous fraud and balance sheet financing uh, that resulted in many, many years of unwinding. This was the statement that BlockFi put out in response to FTX. And I think it's important to note, Your Honor, the company was shocked and dismayed. We had no idea. The company did diligence on FTX. They did diligence on Alameda. They got copies of unaudited financials. They were told there were unencumbered assets. They were told there was value through and through. FTX was a company that provided a lifeline to BlockFi. They went and sought to acquire Voyager. And they were doing this all on a potentially fraudulent basis, without significant controls, with the worst governance controls that anyone has ever seen in their corporate existence. And as a result, in light of the defaulted $680 million on the loans to Alameda, the fact that we made a borrowing request for the remaining money, the additional 125, and that was denied, BlockFi needed to pause platform activity consistent with its customer agreements. Uh, and said to customers that they would be back, clients, excuse me, and communicate as soon as they could. So the path forward, Your Honor. Uh, as you will see from yesterday, we did file a Chapter 11 plan. I am not moving forward today on confirmation, Your Honor, because there were many blanks in that plan. We're not Texas. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Touche. Um, that plan is important to us because I think it's consistent with this company's vision that it's all about the clients. And we want to move as fast as we possibly can to get them back value. And if there's a standalone reorganization that the clients want to support, we'll move that forward. If there's a third-party alternative that Molis and the management team can find for some or all of the assets, we will move that forward. But this is a demonstration, I think, more than anything to our clients that we will fight to maximize value, and we will not stop 
at any point along the way, and it will be a 24-7 endeavor. And we just want to make sure that all the retail holders, the institutions, everybody out there understands and appreciates that. That's our job, and that's what Mr. Prince and Ms. Marquez have been committed to and are committed to doing. Uh, I did want to note this, and I think this is important for all the clients that are out there. To the extent you have questions, to the extent you have concerns, obviously the respective legal teams, you could find our information on the pleadings, but the best way to articulate a question or concern is to send an email to BlockFi Info, two I's, the BlockFi I and the Info I, at ra.kroll.com. And again, Your Honor, to the point made earlier, we will post a copy of this on Kroll's website so everyone has access to the presentation. Thank you. Actually, I think that's incredibly important. You don't have the benefit I do of seeing certain questions that are being asked remotely. Uh, they're important questions. They're significant questions. Uh, I will say to those who are asking those questions, the, the clients, uh, not all parts of the equation are here today in court. We don't have a committee. We don't have a client committee or a customer or a credit committee, as pointed out, which works to, to further their interests. Uh, so we can't have that discussion and answer these inquiries today. But as I think it's important. I, I thank you for providing access where they can direct their concerns uh, and start the process. Absolutely, Your Honor. Thank you. Your Honor, unless you have questions for me, uh, we're going to leave the agenda here and the order in which we'd like to proceed. And I'm going to cede the podium to my partner, Ms. Okike. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Good afternoon. Christine Okike of Kirkland & Ellis, proposed co-counsel to the debtors. Uh, Your Honor, we're going to proceed in the order of the agenda. Uh, the first item on the agenda is the debtors' joint administration motion filed at docket number two. There are nine debtors here, and we seek to have the Chapter 11 cases of the debtors jointly consolidated for procedural and administrative purposes only under the lead case in ReBlockFi, Inc. Um, Your Honor, if I may approach, I have a revised proposed order which incorporates certain comments from the U.S. Trustee. That would be great. Thank you. Um, Your Honor, so this incorporates a couple comments from the U.S. Trustee. We've deleted um, the proofs of claim, so we'll address proofs of claim and how they should be filed in connection with a bar date motion, uh, which will be filed at a later date. And then we've also noted, um, we've deleted that we will file consolidated reports. We'll file those on an individual debtor basis. Um, those are the only changes to the order, um, Your Honor. We have not received any other formal or informal comments. I apologize. One more addition was um, a request by the SEC with respect to, um, in paragraph 12, that uh, nothing in this order, and they've requested that this be added actually to all the orders, um, constitutes a finding under the federal securities laws as to whether crypto tokens or transactions involving crypto tokens are securities. And we're fine with that reservation of language. As I am at this <laughs> juncture. Uh, fair enough. M Mr. Sponder, I'm, uh, since I'm sure we're going to have a, a number of these, uh, I'll look to you and assume uh, you are in agreement with the uh, presentation uh, of a consensus, unless you tell me otherwise or wish to make a statement. Uh, 
That's fine, Your Honor, as well as Ms. Bilski. We both worked on these. Um, I think with respect to this order, as long as those changes were made, um, the United States trustee is fine with the order. Great. Thank you. I'm going to ask to adjust the order on just okay. one matter. Sure. And that would be if we can turn to the case management and procedures motion, only because many of the motions talk about subsequent hearings. Understood. Your and honor. I want to get a sense of when we're going to have those hearings. Understood. Uh, uh, if I haven't. Uh, yeah. No. Befuddled you. Because we're handling here. I go screwing orders. it up for you. Uh, but we'll we'll do it together. Okay. Great. And, uh, Bruce, the first uh, motion uh, was number 13 uh, on our calendar. We have our own calendar, so I'm just letting okay. him know how to mark it. Got it. And uh, let's see. Looking to see which one. And, Bruce, uh, what we're touching on now is number eight on our calendar. The, uh, oh, no, not, num not number eight. Uh, number 11, sorry. But this the debtors, uh, the proposed case management procedures motion. Please continue. Thank you. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Did you want us to make an adjustment to... The case management motion, or uh, I, I just wanted to review it now. Uh, oh, okay, got it. That's yes. all. I, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I just it's wanted okay. to address that so we could talk about scheduling. Understood. Yes. For the so other, Miss Chavez is going to handle uh, that motion. Oh, so okay. Move ahead, Your Honor. Before we proceed, it probably makes sense at this point, since we're going to the substantive relief, to enter the declaration, if you wouldn't mind, the first day declaration. That's fine. Um, so we filed um, the declaration of Mr. Mark Renzi, managing director and head of corporate. Finance Financial Institutions Group for Berkeley Research Group. Uh, it was filed at docket number 17. Uh, Mr. Renzi's declaration has been submitted in support of the Chapter 11 petitions and all of the first day relief. Um, he's in the courtroom today if any party would like to cross-examine him. Otherwise, we would request uh, admittance of his declaration. Thank you. Uh, any counsel wish to uh, cross-examine uh, the declarant? I see no, ha no hands raised on Zoom, so we're good to go. Okay. All right, thank you. We'll, we'll mark that as D1. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Good afternoon. Jordan Chavez with Haynes & Boone on behalf of the debtors. Uh, we'll take up the case management order at Your Honor's request. That's agenda item number six. It's also docket number three and tab number two in the hard copy binder. We've been negotiating with the U.S. trustee on several changes to the case management procedures, which are proposed to your honor to make this complex case run smoothly. And the U.S. trustee has made several helpful suggestions, which we've agreed to all of them, but we were making these changes right up until the moment the hearing started. So I think that Mr. Sponder and the trustee's office would probably like to review this order before it gets entered. 
I have a hard copy of a clean and red line if you would like me to approach and give you those. That's fine. I want to, you can hand it up. Thank you. With all the orders, we'll wait and make sure it, the, the final versions before we put them on the docket. You wish to highlight the changes? The red line highlights all the changes, yes. And so with respect to joint administration, you mentioned wanting to talk about, I'm, I'm guessing you mean the omnibus, omnibus hearing dates. dates. Yes. Are you wanting to set those dates right now? Well, let's talk about that. Uh, I'm trying to find days of the week that I can uh, uh, offer you all time that I think is going to be required and balance it with the other cases, uh, which gets difficult. Uh, it works best for the court uh, to have it on Mondays, uh, if that works for you all. Uh, and then, if not, all right, we'll do Fridays. <laughs> Mondays, well, would, that that works well. So that puts us with the motion. The, the motion schedule uh, of 21 days and then seven before and then replies uh, are the day before. Uh, always a thrill for us in chambers to get the, the reply of the day before. We're fine with that, but that puts it on the Friday. Sure. So, yeah. well, well, unless you have a, an alternative, I would just ask that it be Friday by noon. That way somebody can send it and we can ruin all our weekends. So that was actually a change that the trustee's oh. office already requested, and we've agreed to just make the reply deadline four days in advance of the hearings. Even better. Uh, so that should take care of that issue. Mr. Spahn is working well with the clerks. He's currying favor with the clerks. Uh, uh, one thing that it does provide, Your Honor, though, the new language is that if you were to set a different reply date, for example, if we had something granted on an emergency or expedited basis, that that expedited order or new deadline would apply to that specific motion or contested matter. If that's amenable to your honor, we'll keep that change in. That's fine. All right. Uh, thank you, Mr. Sponder. Um, yeah, so I think the consensus with the co-counsels is that Mondays work. Um, we can certainly contact the clerk's office to get specific dates and times that work for your honor and enter those into um, further orders. Uh, do we want to set the, the next one, which because many of these motions are, are looking for final hearings? Uh, I would think in December, uh, if we're looking for roughly 21 days, or do you want to move it into January? We're fine with January. Um, around the 9th would work, I think, your honor. Um, we know the holidays are coming up and that, there were some times blocked out by the court because of that, which we completely understand. January 9th works for me. Mr. Sponder, makes sense to you? Yes, Your Honor. Then that first date would be January 9th. Needless to say, if there's an emergent matter, court will make itself available. We'll get you all in before that period. What's your preferred time, Judge? Uh, we'll start at 10 o'clock. It has nothing to do with the fact that the cl my club is closed on Mondays. <laughs> well, with that, Your Honor, if you have any other questions about the case management procedures, the only comments we did receive were from the trustee's office. So 
we would ask that the court approve those procedures and enter that order after their office has a chance to review all the language that we've added. Mr. Sponner. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, it's up to you if you want me to go over what's been changed. You do have the red line if you want to look at. Um, basically, there were several. Um, we wanted to get rid of a couple of um, things such as stay relief motions, um, uh, ex parte motions, um, settlements that we didn't, the language to be removed, um, service issues. Um, we also, um, you know, as you heard with the objections and, and those deadlines. Um, so uh, as long as that's what, what was, I haven't had a chance to look at the um, revisions um, yet, but as long as that was there, I think, um, well, I know we are um, looking with Your Honor. Well, let's be clear. We'll wait until tomorrow morning to enter any of the orders. Uh, anything that needs order today will so order from the bench so it's effective. That way everybody has uh, an opportunity to look at the, the, the final language and the law will be entered in the morning. Uh, I'll also take a look again at, at the red line versions just to ensure that I don't have any questions. And if I do, I'll reach out for the parties. Your Honor, I think that will work with, except for with respect to maybe cash management and wages, which will be taken up shortly, and we are resolved with the trustee on those issues, and there weren't other objections. That's fine. We can address those. Thank you, Your Honor. In terms of moving forward, would you like us to go back to our agenda now? I won't disrupt you. Go back to what's working for you. <laughs> well, I will see the podium at and this time, then. what I'll do is, uh, no, that's fine. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Christine Okike of Kirkland and Ellis on behalf of the debtors. Uh, Your Honor, the next item on the agenda is the debtors' cash management motion filed at docket number seven. Your Honor, by way of background, the debtors utilize a complex cash and cryptocurrency management system in the ordinary course of business, which is comparable to the systems used by similar cryptocurrency companies to manage the cash and digital assets on their platform. The cash management system is critical to the debtor's business as it streamlines the debtor's ability to collect, transfer, and disperse cash and digital assets and to facilitate cash and digital asset monitoring, forecasting, and reporting. Your Honor, as Mr. Sussberg mentioned, on November 10th, all trading and lending activities on the debtor's platform were halted. And so while the motion describes in some detail the movement of cash and digital assets through the cash management system, the debtors are only seeking to maintain the system in place and not to engage in any new lending or trading at this time. Your Honor, the cash management system can be thought of as two systems that interact together in the ordinary course of business. The first system consists of the debtor's operational accounts, and the second system consists of the debtor's administrative accounts. The debtors and their non-debtor affiliates maintain a total of 43 bank accounts at five banks, and a list of the bank accounts is included on Exhibit 2 to the proposed order. Your Honor, as of the petition date, the debtors have approximately $257 million in unrestricted cash on hand. Your Honor, I'm just going to walk through kind of the operational side and the administrative side because I think it's helpful to provide context as to how the system works. So, Your Honor, the debtors provide retail customers and institutional investors with the ability to borrow cash or digital assets and the ability to buy and sell digital assets on their platform. Debtors BlockFi Trading LLC and BlockFi International Limited maintain five active bank accounts that are used to facilitate trading activity through the debtors' mobile application. 
The debtors also maintain three ACH trading accounts to, to facilitate the deposit and withdrawal of funds in connection with the debtors' trading activity and to protect against ACH chargebacks. When a customer initiates a transaction through the BlockFi app, it can elect to trade either by using digital assets that are transferred to or maintained in the BlockFi wallet, which Mr. Sussberg mentioned, or by depositing cash to the BlockFi app. International customers may also elect to a trade through the BlockFi interest account. If cash is transferred to fund a trade, the customer is credited with stablecoin in exchange for the cash, and the cash is deposited in BlockFi Trading LLC's account at Silvergate. That stablecoin may be converted to other digital assets if requested by the customer at the time of initiating the transaction. And whether it is or is not transferred into other assets, the coin is transferred to a custodian account of BlockFi Trading LLC. If the customer chooses to trade on the platform using digital assets as opposed to cash, those digital assets are transferred to a custodian account of BlockFi Trading LLC and then transferred to a custodian account of BlockFi Wallet if it's a U.S. transaction or BlockFi International if it's an international transaction. In addition to trading, the debtors also engage in lending, both retail and institutional. Debtors BlockFi Lending LLC and BlockFi International maintain four bank accounts that are used to facilitate access to U.S. dollar and stablecoin loans secured by digital asset collateral. When a retail loan is approved, digital assets designated as collateral are transferred from a BlockFi interest account or an external wallet to the BlockFi wallet, or if there are existing digital assets in a, Black, in a BlockFi wallet, those may also be pledged as collateral. For retail customers borrowing cash from the debtors, once the collateral securing the loan is locked, the cash is then wired from BlockFi Lending LLC's account at Silicon Valley Bank, and I refer to that as the retail loan account, um, to the customer's bank account. If instead of cash, a customer chooses to receive loan proceeds in the form of digital assets, uh, stablecoin, the stablecoin is transferred to the retail customer's wallet. And when a retail customer repays its retail loan in cash, that payment is then deposited back into the retail loan account. Um, if it's an international transaction, if it's a domestic transaction, it goes to a third-party provider uh, called Scratch. And if a retail customer repays its retail loan in stablecoin, the stablecoin is transferred to the BlockFi wallet and then back to the retail loan account. Your Honor, in addition to retail lending, the, de the debtors also allow institutional clients to obtain loans. Um, in some cases, there's collateral involved. It really depends on uh, the counterparty. Institutional clients that are required to post collateral transfer that collateral to an institutional vault, which is specifically named for the institutional client and which is managed by a third-party platform called Fireblocks. Uh, which is commonly used uh, to, you know, hold and manage digital assets in this space. And then that collateral is av available for redeployment in the debtor's revenue-generating activities. When an institutional customer repays its loan in cash, uh, that payment is deposited into Silvergate Lending and SCN accounts, which are listed on, on the chart. And if an institutional customer repays its loan in digital assets, the assets are transferred to Fireblocks and then available for withdrawal. Your Honor, so that's the operational side of the house. Um, in terms of the administrative part of the system, 
the debtors and non-debtors have several administrative accounts. Uh, so Debtor BlockFi Inc. maintains three accounts, um, including the BlockFi Checking account, and Debtor BlockFi Services maintains one account, which are used to fund the debtor's payroll and other operating expenses. An account also held by BlockFi Inc. automatically sweeps amounts from the BlockFi Checking account um, to this account when amounts in that uh, exceed $1 million. Um, and then funds are periodically transferred from BlockFi Inc. to a non-debtor, uh, BlockFi PTE Limited, uh, just for payroll of two employees which are at that entity. Your Honor, in addition to the administrative accounts, there are three collateral accounts which are holding collateral for different things. One is for an office lease. Um, another is actually in favor of Ancora, um, who is the uh, indenture, uh, the trustee for the indenture, um, as well as assisting the company with the S-1. And then we also hold a collateral account in connection with our JV um, in which we've, uh, it's basically to secure certain power payables in connection with our mining, uh, mining of digital assets. Your Honor, as Mr. Sussberg noted, each customer that opens an account with the debtors is provided with a BlockFi wallet. And it's a non-interest bearing account to support digital assets. Um, once a customer creates an account with the debtors, they can either transfer digital assets from their own external wallet to the BlockFi wallet, or they can use fiat currency to purchase digital assets to be deposited in the BlockFi wallet. And once a customer funds their BlockFi wallet, they can then participate in various uh, other kind of programs and platforms um, on BlockFi. So the BlockFi wallet allows the customer to use, um, to do several things. They can open an interest-bearing account for international customers only, <coughs> Um, they can trade digital assets on the debtor's platform. They can receive U.S. and stablecoin loans for digital assets. Um, and they can also use uh, a digital asset rewards card um, called the BlockFi Rewards Visa card. Your Honor, it's important to note, as Mr. Sussberg said, assets that are in the BlockFi wallet are not used uh, by the company for revenue-generating <coughs> activities. Um, and pursuant to the wallet terms of service, title to the digital assets remains with the customer at all times. Um, so, Your Honor, for purposes of what I'm describing today, we really consider the BlockFi wallet to be outside of the cash management system, um, where we're not seeking, uh, you know, cash actually never goes in or comes out of the BlockFi wallet, and we're not seeking to do anything with respect to the BlockFi wallet in terms of the relief that we're seeking today. Your Honor, so to get to the relief that we're seeking on an interim basis, first to continue using and maintaining the cash management system, including pre-petition bank accounts and forms, without reference to the debtor status as debtor in possession, and to pay any pre-petition and post-petition amounts on account of outstanding bank fees. Uh, we currently have 50,000 that's outstanding on account of uh, pre-petition bank fees. Second, to continue entering into intercompany transactions between debtors consistent with our historical practice on a post-petition basis, subject to certain reporting obligations, which we've included in the proposed order, and to grant super-priority administrative expense to those post-petition transactions between debtors. Third, we're seeking approval to continue using our corporate cards in the ordinary course of business. We have two, um, two providers of corporate cards, Airbus and Brex. Um, and lastly, we're seeking uh, authority that to the extent our cash management system does not comply with Section 345B of the Bankruptcy Code, um, a waiver for a period of 45 days 
without prejudice to seek additional waivers from the court, and that's something that we negotiated with the U.S. trustee. Your Honor, given the complexity of the debtor's business and financial affairs and the movement of funds through the cash management system, we believe that this relief is not only customary but is necessary for purposes of maintaining our current system and making sure that our cash and digital assets remain secure. Your Honor, I'm happy to answer any questions. Otherwise, I can proceed with the revised proposed order, which includes comments from the U.S. trustee. That would be fine. Thank you. And in the interim, either Ms. Bilski or Mr. Sponder, any concerns you have? Ms. Bilski? Thank you, Your Honor. May I approach? Yes, please. Thank you. Without purporting to understand exactly how everything works, counsel is correct that we did offer comments on the cash management order and came to an agreement on certain provisions, including we call it a suspension of the 345 requirements for 45 days as opposed to the 30 days that were or we reached an agreement to make it 45 days. And additionally, we added language in there to be clear that the intercompany transfers will be kept track of and completely and fully documented so that those can be reviewed as well. All right. Thank you. Now, my understanding is this is one of the orders that needs to be entered today in order to facilitate operations. Yes, Your Honor. I'm happy to walk through the changes. And we're providing for a final hearing on that January 9th date? Yes. 23, quickly, at 10 a.m. Since quickly on that topic, do we want to have a – I'd like to be able to post on our court's website a second omnibus date. Do you want it three weeks from that Monday or four weeks? The three weeks would be January 30th. The fourth week would be February 6th. Do you have a sense? Three weeks sounds good, Your Honor. You can always adjust it as we go, as needed. We're trying to move quickly. Well, then let's keep it on for the 30th. We'll stop there. And then we'll revisit dates going forward at another time. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, so just to point out some of the changes in Paragraph 4, this includes the language regarding tracking intercompany transfers post-petition so that they can be properly traced. Your Honor, we did add language at the end of Paragraph 5, which is just really a reservation of rights that was requested by a party that basically says that there's nothing in this order that is altering or modifying the rights of other parties to assert that cash or digital assets, et cetera, are not property of the estate. And so we've included that reservation of rights in Paragraph 5. Your Honor, in Paragraph 10, we've agreed to give notice to the U.S. trustee and any statutory committee to the extent that we open a new bank account and provided further that any new bank accounts will be opened at an authorized depository. Fifteen is just the intercompany transactions again. Paragraph 16 provides for the suspension of Section 345B for the 45 days. We've provided that we'll pay U.S. trustees fees on a debtor-by-debtor basis, notwithstanding that it's a consolidated system in Paragraph 17. We've also agreed in 18 and 19 to alert those banks that are authorized depositories and those that are not to see if they're willing to 
sign an authorized depository form with the U.S. trustee. And then, Your Honor, the last two paragraphs, 25 and 26, this is, again, language requested by the SEC with respect to federal securities laws and tokens, and it's just really a reservation of rights. All right. And the language works for the U.S. trustee, correct? Your Honor, we have no objection to the SEC petitions or the other language that's been requested. We haven't reviewed the current form of order. We just wanted to do that before we're done here this morning, this afternoon. All right. Then it will be entered this afternoon unless we hear otherwise. Thank you very much, Your Honor. With that, I'll cede the podium to my colleague, Mr. Fitch. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Good afternoon. For the record, Francis Petrie from Kirkland on behalf of the debtors. It may help things go more smoothly if I am allowed to approach the podium with some red lines. Absolutely. Thank you. So, Your Honor, I'll be walking us through the next couple of agenda items, the next one being the employee wages and benefits motion. This is agenda item number three, which was filed at docket number 16. Through this motion, the debtors seek entry of an order permitting the uninterrupted continuation of programs coming due to its work, programs and payments that are coming due to their workforce, including those related to wage obligations and benefits programs. Your Honor, the approximately 370 individuals who are currently employed by the debtors are perhaps their most valuable asset and the heart of the company. They perform roles critical to preserving the debtors' business and offering them security for their assets. Their unique skills, knowledge, and experience are crucial to maximizing value for the estates. In addition, these people rely on the relief sought in this motion to pay their daily living expenses and support their families. Payment of the amount sought in this motion would minimize the potential hardship that this workforce would suffer. As noted, about two-thirds of the debtors' employees have received warrant notices prior to the commencement of these cases. Those employees will continue to be eligible for wages and benefits for the notice period associated with the warrant notice. But for those who remain, being paid is also just as crucial. So through this motion, the debtors are seeking authority to continue to pay their wages, salaries, and reimbursable expenses, and to continue benefits programs in the ordinary course of business. This motion does not seek authority to pay for any bonuses to insiders or anyone, any incentive amounts, or severance payments. Note that we did separately file that retention program motion, but that's not what's up in this motion. We have engaged on the wages motion with the U.S. trustee, who has provided comments that we've incorporated in a revised form of order. The new language that we agreed upon with the U.S. trustee summarizes that there's no bonuses contemplated, and we took language relying to complying with 503C and not cashing out on any current outstanding sick pay. However, we were unable to reach resolution about the changes that you see in paragraph 3. For transparency's sake, shortly after we filed the original version of this order, it became known to us that two non-insider employees were due amounts that were owing over the $15,150 cap for pre-petition work already done. One of these employees is due about $1,200. The other one is due around $6,000. Each of these employees is not an insider. They are crucial to the debtor's operations and business. Both are located in Bermuda, and particularly with the ongoing ancillary proceeding that will be going on there, it is all the more important for these employees to be paid so they do not leave their jobs. 
It would be hard, if not impossible, to replace these two people, one of whom is the head of risk management. The other one has a regulatory role that deals with anti-money laundering, which are both crucial roles that need to be maintained, especially to maintain the integrity of the proceeding that's going on in Bermuda. I'm not sure if the Office of the U.S. Trustee has any comments on that, but in summary, we do believe that paying those employees those amounts at the interim stage is crucial and necessary, and the debtors respectfully ask Your Honor to allow that to occur. I'm happy to answer any questions you have about the form of order. Let me hear from the U.S. Trustee. Mr. Sponder. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, as you know, we typically allow the payment of wages up to the 507 caps outside of a plan based on priority. The amounts above the caps are general unsecured claims and should not be paid until a plan is confirmed and becomes effective. With that said, Your Honor, we realize the amounts are minimal, but object nonetheless. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sponder. I appreciate the U.S. Trustee's input. I recognize we're above the limits. The amounts, though, are somewhat nominal and balanced against the potential prejudice. The Court's going to overrule the objection. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. As noted, this is one of the time-sensitive orders. There is a payroll draw and fund that needs to take place as soon as possible, so if Your Honor will indulge us, it would be great if we could. It will be entered this afternoon. Great. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Okay. So that will take us to the next item on the agenda, the debtor's equity trading motion. It's agenda item number four and filed at docket number 14. The debtors believe that they currently have a variety of tax attributes, including approximately $566 million of federal net operating losses, which under certain circumstances may be used to reduce future tax payments or carry back to offset taxable income. These tax attributes can become subject to significant limitation under the tax code if an ownership change occurs. So the purpose of the relief that we seek in this motion is to minimize the risk that an ownership change will occur before the conclusion of these restructuring cases. By this motion, we request the Court to seek to maximize the values of the estates by implementing procedures by which the debtors can monitor and object to certain transfers of the debtors' common and preferred stock to ensure that the tax attributes and NOLs are preserved. We engaged with the U.S. Trustee about this form of order and included their requested language, which relates to the form and matter of notice by which equity holders will receive this motion. I'm happy to answer any questions that Your Honor has. Otherwise, I respectfully ask the Court to grant the relief requested on an interim basis. The debtor is able to identify those equity holders that meet the 4.5% criteria? We are. And they will be noticed on this for the final hearing? Yes, indeed. All right. Mr. Sponder or Ms. Bielski, I apologize now if I go to the wrong person. With regard to the changes that we requested, once those are made, we have no objection to the proposed form of order. All right. The Court has reviewed the proposed order in advance, notwithstanding the changes. The Court has no issue and will enter the order. Thank you, Your Honor. There's no reason why this can't be entered today, correct? It's the final version? Yes, that is the final version. We also emailed all of these to Chambers, though I understand it happened while Your Honor was on the bench. So I don't expect you to have reviewed those. We're good. We're just not that good. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. That concludes my part of the agenda. I'll turn the podium over to my colleagues at Haynes and Booth. Thank you. Good afternoon again, Your Honor. Good. Jordan Chavez with Haynes and Booth on behalf of the debtors. 
Um, I have a few remaining items to address on the agenda. The first is a, uh, agenda number five is the coal retention application. That was filed at docket number 15 and is tab 13 in the hard copy binder. Um, with respect to the filing, we did attach two exhibits. Exhibit A was the engagement letter between Kroll and the debtors, and Exhibit B is the declaration of Benjamin Steele, who's a managing director at Kroll. And I would ask at this time that Your Honor admit those into evidence. Any objection? Uh, we'll, we'll mark the declaration of Mr. Steele as D2, and the agreement is D3. Thank you, Your Honor. As Your Honor, I'm sure is aware, the purpose of retaining a claims and noticing agent is to really take a lot of the administrative burden off the debtors during this stressful time, as well as the clerk's office, and to streamline the process for communicating with creditors and constituents, and to ensure proper service on all the parties in interest in this case. We did receive a couple of comments to our form of order from the trustee's office, and we accepted all of those comments. In addition, we also received a request from Ankara, the indentured trustee, to authorize Kroll to just directly serve those individuals that are the U.S. BIA clients that Mr. Susbrick explained earlier. We've added that language to the order. So with that, I believe that we're resolved on all issues. And if Your Honor would like to see a red line copy, I can provide that. That's fine. Do you, uh, do you also have the final version? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Anyone wish to be heard? Uh, Your Honor, Jeff Sponder from the Office of the United States Trustee. Uh, we have not seen the final order. Um, we understand that all of our revisions are being incorporated. Just ask. I don't think it's necessary to have it entered this afternoon, that it can stay till tomorrow morning. Let us have a look at it, and um, hopefully there won't be any issues. Thank you. No problem. We'll, we'll put this one aside till tomorrow. Next, Your Honor, is item number seven, which is the motion to consolidate creditors and redact certain personal identifiable information and information about clients. This was filed at docket number four, and it's tab number three in the hard copy binder. And we're seeking authority to file the top 50 creditors list. We recognize that this is a complex case with several creditors, so we've upfront offered to file a top 50 list rather than, say, 20 or 30. And we're seeking to redact personal information, specifically names and addresses and information like that and client names. And we did receive a couple of comments from the U.S. trustee with respect to the name redactions, and we were not able to reach an agreement on that issue. We, rec we would like to point out for your honor, and we offered this to the trustee, that this is an interim order, and we could reserve the trustee's rights until the final order is addressed at a later time. This is a very important issue for the client, and for obvious purposes, there's a number of clients in this case, and it's it really addresses for individuals, you know, personal information in terms of safety and security issues, as well as the clients, our clients, proprietary information and how they have spent years building a client base. So we would ask that Your Honor make the judgment call to allow us to keep those names redacted, and with that, I will. I will see the podium to the trustee to make their comments and then would ask a brief moment to respond. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, 
The United States trustee does not object to a top 50 consolidated list. Um, the U.S. trustee um, also, with that said, does not agree to an entry of this interim order that allows the redaction of names and addresses of individuals and names of clients, including businesses, that are located in the United States uh, and Europe. The debtors here seek to redact this information from the consolidated creditor matrix, the top 50 lists, schedules and statements, and any other document filed with the court. During this interim period, at the very least, the debtors will file the consolidated creditor matrix, the top 50 list, as well as any host of other pleadings uh, that would include such redactions. Uh, Your Honor, I, I am prepared to argue this motion today um, and um, ask if I should proceed or if Your Honor is going to um, uh, uh, push this off to the final hearing. But I am ready and, um, to argue it. I appreciate uh, your position. Uh, my colleagues in the Southern District and in Delaware have addressed these same issues, uh, and they're difficult issues. We're balancing the interest of uh, the particular clients at issue versus the interest of transparency and uh, how, how best to assist the estate in maximizing its value, the debtor maximizing values. I'm not prepared uh, on this limited record and on a, uh, with limited opportunity to digest uh, the argument to, uh, uh, to rule one way or the other. I think it's appropriate to uh, allow the interim order uh, and to consider this matter uh, in the fuller context of, uh, I'm not going to say additional briefing, but additional time for the court to digest the briefing uh, at the final hearing. So uh, I appreciate uh, your readiness. But uh, I'm going to permit the interim relief because I don't see any prejudice uh, to the estate, to the debtor, uh, but the threat of prejudice to these parties. And certainly prudence dictates uh, uh, further consideration before uh, opening the barn and not being able to bring the horse back in. All right? Understood, Your Honor. I just, um, with respect to the order, the interim order that is going to be submitted, because the consolidated list is going to be filed as well as the top 50 and for us to get in, in um, preparation for um, appointing a committee, um, just want to make sure that the order, and I think it will, um, have the language in there that um, the United States trustee will get an unredacted um, copy of, those, of, of all those documents. My understanding is the court gets an un unredacted version and the U.S. trustee and uh, subject to further scrutiny other parties uh, in interest who request it. Yes. Jordan Chavez, Your Honor, that's correct. Um, that's what the proposed form of order already contemplated. In addition to that, we received a request this morning from the SEC to also receive that information, and we've agreed to that, so the, the order will reflect that as well. All right. Uh, the court is prepared to enter that order uh, uh, with the changes that you've referenced. Uh, do you have a final version? Yes, Your Honor. May I approach? And, Mr. Uh, Sponder, have you seen the, this version? I have not seen it. Um, I've, I've seen the other versions, but um, I, if, I don't think it's necessary to, uh, again, for today. Um, I'll take a look at them this afternoon and get back to counsel on them. All right. Uh, again, this will be in the batch that will be entered tomorrow morning. All right. Thank you. You may proceed.
Thank you, Your Honor. The next item is number eight, which is the debtor's motion for an entry of an order extending the time to file the schedules and statements. This was filed at docket number five in this tab four in the binder. We requested a 30-day extension for the debtors to file their schedules and statements. There are nine debtors with multiple responsibilities in this case that have been working around the clock on multiple important issues that Mr. Sussberg highlighted this morning. We've discussed our proposed new deadline with the U.S. Trustee's Office, and they've agreed to the January 11th extension. We did make one change to this order, which is that we removed the language that referenced the consolidation order that Your Honor has continued into a final hearing. So because it's sort of redundant, we are fine with still keeping that language out of this order. And so that's the only change, and we've shown that to the Trustee's Office. So if I could approach and provide you with that. Thank you. And Mr. Sponder, you're comfortable with the January 11th date? Ms. Bielski? Thank you, Your Honor. Lauren Bielski, yes, we're comfortable with that. Okay. We're going to leave that date to the extent the debtor can actually get it in in advance. Since we're coming back January 9th, it probably would be helpful. So I'll just implore the debtor to see what they can do and move it up by a couple of days. But we'll leave it in the order of January 11th. Thank you, Your Honor. Noted, and we will work hard at getting those completed. All right. The last item I have to address is number nine on the agenda, which is the utilities motion. That was filed at docket number 10 and is tab eight in the hard copy binder. With respect to the utilities motion, it's fairly straightforward. As I'm sure Your Honor noticed, it's a pretty low exposure amount given the nature of the debtor's business here. We discussed with the U.S. trustee, and we've agreed to their proposed language with respect to a couple of changes involving any return of the deposit. So we put some language in paragraph 5H to that effect. And those were the only other comments we received or what's reflected in the red line from the trustee's office. So we didn't receive any other informal comments other than the general protective order language that the SEC requested, which is reflected in the order. So unless Your Honor has any questions about utilities, I would ask that you grant the motion and enter the interim order. All right. We were just referencing four utilities, I think. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor. There's not very many. And among them are Internet providers, et cetera. Yes, it's mainly Internet and telecom providers, and then the debtors pay their electricity through their landlord. And so even though they do that, we've agreed to segregate 50% of that amount into a deposit account. All right. That was my question. I didn't see the landlord listed. It's paperless. Okay. Oh, all right. It's a party. Okay. All right. Anyone wish to be heard? The court will. Yes. For the record, that's an accurate reflection of what we agreed to. There is red language in there. Yes. Thank you, Ms. Bielski. I appreciate it. All right. And, again, we'll also include in those dates the January 9th date for the final hearing. Yes, Your Honor. We'll include that and submit an updated copy to Chambers. This one can't be entered? This can be entered? Oh, yes, it can. Are you going to put it in? We'll fill in the dates. Oh, appreciate it. Thank you, Your Honor. We can do that. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
I appreciate it. Um, Thank you. But that, that concludes my presentation. Thank you for your time, and I'll see the podium <coughs> for the remaining agenda issues to Mr. Kanowitz. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. May it please the Court, Richard Kanowitz of Haynes & Boone, proposed counsel to the debtors, obviously co-counsel <coughs> Kirkland. Um, if I could jump around a little because I'll address the two matters that there are no objections by the U.S. trustee, so therefore the form of order is consistent. The first is the insurance policy surety bond motion, which is tab 9, docket 11. Um, basically, uh, a straightforward motion allowing for flexibility. The one thing that I would point out for the record, we are talking about lending licenses and bonds here. We are not talking about the monetary transmission bonds. Okay, okay. That, The motion does not address that to the extent we need to address it with the court. will be a separate motion. Um, we don't, there's no pre-petition amounts. We're talking about the minimum payments given the scope of how big this organization is. However, these are very important assets to maintain um, and to be able to sell the business, for example, to have the lending bonds in place if necessary. We would ask that the court grant the motion. There has been no objections. We did get the comment uh, from a counterparty on the bonds requesting that clarification in the order that this does not apply to the monetary transmission bonds. All right. Uh, anyone wish to be heard? Court had no issue with the relief being sought. Uh, that's included among the revised orders that have been forwarded to chambers. Uh, I believe so. Yes. All right. We'll we'll pick that one out, and the court it's granted. Thank you. Sure. And the next one is a no objection motion, the worldwide stay motion. That's Doctor Twelve, Tab Twelve. Um, this is a pretty standard motion. Uh, nothing in thirty years works as well as a court order explaining people's rights and what to do and what not to do. So we would ask Your Honor to enter it. We have a lot of, obviously, non-U.S. customers, clients, counterparties. Um, to the extent that we have to write letters, it's just easier to put this out there. Uh, this is maintaining the status quo. This is not seeking any type of extra ordinary relief, extending the automatic state to any particular party. Um, it, like I said, to say a lot, it is what it is. We would ask Your Honor to enter it, please. The court has entered these orders in the past. Uh, recognizing it's a comfort order. Uh, the only proviso that uh, i like to make sure all parties are aware of, uh, the value of having it in order, as you're aware, is that it allows for the enforcement through contempt, uh, as opposed to, because it's essentially just regurgitating the code in, in the order. Uh, before I would hold the party in contempt, I would need to be assured by separate motion that they've been served and had notice of the order. Absolutely, Your Honor. We are not going to try to jam anybody with this order. I appreciate that. Uh, the, the order will be entered. Thank you. Thank you. The next motion is the tax motion, tab 7, docket 9. This is on interim and final relief. Uh, very minor comments to the proposed order by the U.S. Trustee's Office. It, it's talking to make clarifications. They're not even substantive. Um, I have a copy of the order if you want to see, but we can hand it up later. They are de minimis. Um, again, this is, a, I would say, an ordinary course motion. Um, to the extent we have sales and use tax and other types of things we need to pay in the ordinary course. I don't believe we're talking about significant amounts here. The motion recites $450,000 on a post-petition basis for 12 months, so that's what we're looking at, or customer garnishments, for example, in the amount of $12,000. So, again, uh, really no objection. Some minor comments from the U.S. trustee. We'll submit the order to Your Honor for review, and we ask <coughs> that it get granted. That's fine. Any uh Anyone wish to comment in the council? Ms. Bilski? Thank you. I'm Lauren Bilski with the U.S. Trustee's Office. Uh, no objection to the substantive relief. It was a minor substantive order. All right. So that will be order be provided. 
Yes, Your Honor. Okay. All of them will be provided. I'll rely on Ms. Chavez to make sure that I don't mess everything up. I have no doubt we'll be fine. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, the next one is tab 11, docket 13. This is uh, the critical vendor motion. Again, instrument final orders. Uh, we've taken the U.S. trustee's language and put it in the order. If I may approach, Your Honor, because the extent you want to do see a red line. Yes, um, please. I, I would approach. I also have a schedule of the various different vendors that we anticipate paying. We submitted this to the U.S. trustee's office this morning. Um, we've had productive conversations, but I'll hear what they have to say after I, I review this quickly with Your Honor. May I, I did. Thank you. Please. I did have a question on a reference shippers, and I was wondering what you're shipping. Good question. These aren't these good, good digital ships for digital coins? No, just, uh, yes, just good question in abundance of caution, these type of things, to the extent there's equipment or any other types of things that are relied upon by us, goods, merchandise, equipment, you know, mining equipment, for example. I'm not saying there is. It's just to the extent there is. To the extent you know, there is. Right, exactly. All right. All right. So, I mean, really, we thank the U.S. trustee for their comments. Um, based last night and discussions this morning, we've been back to the company really scrub the critical vendor list. Uh, we actually are reducing the amount that we're seeking in the interim period to about 900000 from the number that was in the motion. Likewise, the, the number goes down for the final. So we're not seeking uh, everything today. We're seeking a lot of it today. And as you can see from the list that we gave you, Your Honor, we're talking about big ticket items. This is a crypto tech company. We cannot go dark. Uh, we cannot have a fight with Google. We cannot have a fight with Amazon. We cannot have a fight with Microsoft, among others. Bloomberg, just, just giving you the, the taste of the types of things we're looking to pay. Um, in fact, one of our uh, vendors actually terminated us, and uh, that was for engineering support. So w we take our obligation seriously to only pay what is necessary, and I think the relief is so sought as appropriate and supported by the record. And I want to ask Your Honor to, again, approve this. It's an interim basis. If to the extent the U.S. trustee has concerns, we'll make a full record, if you will, at the final hearing, but more importantly, we're going to work with them to make sure that we are paying the right people. The company has a vested interest in making sure the money doesn't go out the door. This is to the benefit of the estate and for our clients. We ask you to grant the motion. Ms. Bielski? Thank you. With regards to the critical vendor motion, we appreciate that it was pared down and that the, we received the vendor list this morning. Um, in the first instance, it's our preference that this is just held at the final hearing. But um, overall, our concern is that the debtors, other than indicating that one vendor had already terminated service, we don't know that the vendors on that list have actually made any kind of um, indication that they would not continue to provide service but for getting paid the pre-petition amounts. And we believe that without that, um, the debtors have not met their burden. Um, so, we, And part of what we ask is if because the order provides that the debtors are authorized but not directed to make these payments, that before any such payment is made, that they be responding to a, a threat by these vendors that they would not continue to provide services. I don't think that's been agreed to. So without that uh, bit of information that there's actually been some indication that they would cease doing business, we do not think it's appropriate to make these payments. All right, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Response? Just very simply, Your Honor, this is ordinary course of business. Business judgment prevails. The whole idea of this motion is to avoid calamity, not to run into court and stop someone from doing something that could cause harm to the estate. We ask, again, on an interim basis, you authorize it if to the extent we still are in disagreement with the U.S. trustee because we added other parties that we need to pay. We'll make a full record at the final hearing. 
But for today's purposes, the evidence supports you granting the interim order. All right. Thank you. Uh, again, I respect the U.S. Trustee's position as a matter of law, certainly, uh, their support for limiting uh, unsecured uh, payment of unsecured debt uh, through this fashion. Other courts have taken issue with it. Uh, not this court. Uh, it's important. I think it's, uh, it's too late to push the vendors to the precipice and then draw them back. Uh, the court looks at uh, a roughly roughly $900,000 sought in the scheme of a case where it's liabilities referenced on the petition were $1 billion to $10 billion. That's a lot of zeros, and 900000 pales in importance. Uh, the harm and the prejudice to the operations don't warrant uh, doing so. And I'll add, uh, again, I respect the U.S. Trustee's position, but when a company has uh, provided war notices to two-thirds of its workforce, it's not looking to throw away money. Uh, at least I don't view it that way. Every dollar is critical. So I will uh, approve it on an interim basis, and we'll have a fuller exploration of the issues at the final hearing. Thank you, Your Honor. This uh, really concludes the agenda, but there are two important items for Your Honor to hear about, just briefly. Let me just uh, – is this the final order? Yes, Your Honor. All right. And is, and all the language with respect to the SEC is in all, all these orders, so I believe that's as well. And Ms. Bielski, Mr. Uh, Sponder, notwithstanding the objections, the language is you're comfortable with? Sure. All right. Thank you. May I proceed, Counsel? Your Honor? Yes. Thank you. Um, just to alert Your Honor's attention to the fact that there was an adversary proceeding filed, um, Mr. Sussberg touched on it briefly. Um, I noticed that Eric Winston of Quinn Emanuel, who represents the FDX estate, is, is on the phone. Um, we're not looking to jam anyone again, and I use that word, because, you know, this process needs to unfold correctly for the benefit of the clients. We want to have little, if no, litigation involved in this case. But to the extent we are going to have it, it's going to be transparent, it's going to be fully documented and properly put before Your Honor. There is nothing on for today. We are going to – we filed our turnover motion. It's against two non-debtor entities. We believe we have the proper foundation, evidentiary-wise, legally, to get the relief we are seeking. That motion will be heard on, I guess, the second day hearing, which is January 9th. If we need emergency relief because parties are not acting appropriately, we will come before Your Honor. I don't anticipate that. I don't anticipate that for two reasons. One, we've been in communication with Sullivan and Cromwell last night. Um, they asked us about the motion and the, and the allegations set forth therein. We are going to try to have as many constructive calls with the FTX estate as possible, including Mr. Winston at Quinn to the extent he's involved. Um, so we're, we're, going to, we're going to try our best to be commercial at all times and recognize every dollar we spend is the client's money. I'm sure the FDX estate understands that as well. Um, we also spoke to Mince Levin, EDF Mann's counsel. Um, we're trying to get information from them. We're cooperative with them. Unfortunately, we had to bring the action to protect what we view as a critical, <coughs> critical asset of this estate. Um, I'll leave it at that unless Your Honor has questions. No, I think it will be premature for me. Mr. Winston, did you wish to be heard? I know you popped in. Uh, yes, Your Honor, very briefly, for the record, Eric Winston of Quinn Emanuel for 
uh, West Realm Shires, Alameda, and the other affiliated FTX debtors. Your, your Honor, we're, I'm very glad to hear counsel's comments, um, and, and of course nothing is on for today. We're here to monitor the block by cases and to ensure that the stakeholders of the FTX debtors, which include West Realm Shires and Alameda, are protected. In that regard, we're continuing to investigate uh, and we reserve all rights in that respect. And in respect of the adversary proceeding, we do believe that one or more of the debtors' estates have an interest in what counsel uh, has previously called the collateral, was referred to as collateral in the adversary proceeding, and we likewise reserve all rights in that respect. Um, we'll, we'll deal with it at the appropriate time. All right. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Your Honor. And then lastly, Your Honor, just an update on the Bermuda proceedings. This morning before Chief, Chief Hargun, I hope I have his name right, um, the joint provisional liquidator order that was negotiated between uh, the company, um, the board, management, um, with walkers and all of our teams here in the United States was entered. So we have two provisional liquidators in the Bermuda proceedings, which is called a light-touch proceeding. Yeah, I, I, no, I noted that. Uh, the, the order that was entered, however, doesn't seem to be so light. That's all I'll say. Um, we have Joel Edwards from ENY Bermuda and Eleanor Fisher of ENY Cayman. Those are the joint provisional liquidators. We're going to be working through walkers as well as the Block by International Board and management to try to be as cooperative and productive with them. We had a great call yesterday. I say great because there were 30 people on the call, and it went an hour, and it was seamless. I think everyone did a, you know, a very good job trying to promote cooperation and not stepping on each other's toes. We expect them from time to time to be involved in these proceedings here in the U.S., and likewise, to the extent we need to, we'll be in Bermuda. Um, but I see um, something going very well and not any hiccups or problems yet. Yet. I'll <laughs> remember the word yet. All right. Uh, thank you for the update. Yes, Your Honor. Unless you have anything further for me, I think this concludes the hearing, and we thank you for Your Honor's time and attention. Thank you, Counsel. I appreciate your efforts and the professionalism of all. Let me ask, uh, is there anyone uh, appearing through uh, Zoom? Do they wish to be heard? Anyone else in the courtroom wish to weigh in on any issues? Then uh, we are adjourned. Thank you very Thank much. You. Travel safely. <laughs>